Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you the August 2022 meeting of the Whitechapel Society and their guest speaker, John Walker. Mr. Walker is a local East End historian who runs the Forest Gate history blog E7 Now and Then and is the author of the book Out of Sight, Out of Mind, Abuse, Neglect, and Fire in a London Children's Workhouse, 1854-1907. So without further ado, let's venture into the Crutched Friar in the East End of London for John Walker. Good evening. Welcome once again to the Crutch Friar Pub here in Allgate East in London for the August Whitechapel Society. We'd also like to welcome all of you who are listening in to us via the Rippercast podcast. So you're very welcome. And if you'd like to find out more about the Whitechapel Society, please go to whitechapelsociety.com. Now, those of us who have studied the Whitechapel murders are all too aware of the shadow that the workhouse threw over the local residents. And of course, the body of the first canonical victim, Polly Nichols, was brought to the old Montague Street workhouse infirmary following her discovery on Bucks Row. Now these were places to be avoided at all costs and only entered as a last resort. But what was it like to live there for those who had no choice but to force to be lived to live in the workout, especially young children, and tonight we're going to find out. So this evening we extend a warm welcome to Mr. John Walker, whose topic tonight is Whitechapel's Children's Workhouses. Now, John is a local historian who has lived in the east uh, end of London for over 40 years. He runs a highly successful blog around Forest Gate history called E7 Now and Then. And it was while he was researching the local area that he found an old building in Forest Lane, the story of which inspired his book, Out of Sight, Out of Mind, Abuse, Neglect and Fire in a Children's Workhouse, 1854 to 1907. It's the story of one of England's most notorious workhouses and gives an account of the lives of the Victorian uh, East London pauper children who from the age of two years of age were housed there. It was a place where abuse, scandal, neglect, ill-discipline and corruption was rife. So please give a big welcome to John Walker. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here and I'm most grateful that people have chosen to spend an evening inside pub listening to me rather than being outside in glorious weather with a glass of something rather splendid in their hands. So thank you very much for those of you in the Crutch Flyer and probably even more so those of you following this online because you get it kind of once removed. But as has been said, I'll be talking tonight about the, the Whitechapel's children in the second half of the 19th century and their experience in a children's workhouse. And the very, very significant part played in the history of that institution by one of Whitechapel's more famous previous uh, residents and the the lesser known of the uh, the formidable Bar- uh, Samuel and Henrietta Barnett pairing. So I'll I'll spend a little time talking about Henrietta Barnett. Who the more I looked into it, the more uh, I discovered what an absolutely incredible woman she was. So I'll talk about the children in the workhouse, what happened, how they got there, uh, what happened to them afterwards what happened to the fate of the children after the workhouse closed and uh, spend a little while talking about the uh, the very significant Henrietta Barnett. So off we go. The talk is largely based on my book Out of Sight, Out of Mind, Abuse, Neglect, Fire in a London Workhouse School uh, with some additional material that isn't in there specifically about Whitechapel to meet your needs and interests more. Let me just start by saying if you travel into Liverpool Street from Essex on the train halfway between Forest Gate and Maryland Station so you know, three or four miles, five or six miles from Liverpool Street just to the right and it's just out of sight <laughs> but this building uh, is still there that's a photo I took last year or the year before. That building for 50 years uh, was home for 50,000 East End children aged between 2 and 14 years, many of them from Whitechapel, as I'll explain later on 
1907 it closed, it became a maternity hospital in which another 50,000 EastEnders were born uh, until that uh, hospital was closed in 1986 when Newham Maternity Hospital uh, effectively replaced it for, for Newham residents. My, my book is the story of that institution and the people who lived in it. By way of background, just to say that the poor in this country, you know, the, the, the poor are always with us, but the poor in this country until the 19th century had traditionally been looked after locally by a combination of churches and charities. Then during the late 18th and early 19th century, three very significant revolutions occurred that disrupted this pattern. And they were the agricultural revolution, and I don't want to go into detail, but you know, well, which effectively, one, one of the effects was to increase agricultural output. One of the other effects was to decrease rural employment, led to rural unemployment. The second revolution was the transport revolution, the building of canals, turnpike roads, railways and so on that, that many of us will know about. And the transport revolution, combined with the agricultural revolution, gave the unemployed, the rural unemployed, the ability to leave poverty behind and transport themselves into cities, to towns and cities. And that in itself was part of the third revolution, the industrial revolution, with which we're all fairly familiar. Now, that sounds great. Rural unemployment, people jump on the train, come into the cities. But the structures for looking after an explosion of population which just weren't there. Uh, even in London, uh, it couldn't cope with the enormous numbers of people coming in. And into East London, people came in in considerable quantities from East Anglia, Essex and so on. And pretty much the nearest place they came into in East London, because much of what we now know as East London, uh, Newham and, and further uh, east, uh, didn't exist. It was still rural. So the first place they drifted in uh, to East London was areas like Whitechapel, Hackney, Poplar, and so on. And these, they weren't sleepy, they weren't small, but the populations there had been used to incrementally looking after poor people as they came to church doors seeking support, as they went to local charities. Suddenly there was an explosion of demand. And to put it into perspective, London as a whole grew from a population of 2 million people in 1851 to almost 7 million in 1951. And a tripling of the population of, of the city within the, the equivalent of the lifetime of almost everybody in this room. I mean, you know, people today talk about the country being overcrowded, there's too many people, de da de da de da The population of London tripled in 50 years, and the place couldn't cope. There was no local government for much of that time, as we know it. They couldn't cope with poverty. People came in thinking the streets of London were going to be paved with gold. They weren't paved in most cases, never mind gold. There was no money. They couldn't get work. If it was, it was casual. Jerry building of houses. People lived in dreadful conditions. And the social structure was unable to deal with the poverty. So, and this, this is a, I, I, I don't know if you've had presentations on Gustave Doré, but he, he, he was a French woodcutter who spent a lot of time in the 1870s, a lot of it in East London, doing woodcuttings of life in East London. This was a picture of life on the streets of Wentworth Street in 1870. So these huge numbers of people coming to the city, there was jerry-built housing, some of them couldn't afford to live there. They lived on the streets. There was an alternative, which was the workhouse, which I'll talk about uh, in a moment. But just to give you an understanding of how awful life in the workhouse was, these people preferred to live in this poverty on the streets rather than go into a workhouse where they were treated incredibly badly. So, you know, picture yourself for a moment. How bad would life in an institution have to be for you to choose to live on the streets with your kids as beggars 
in ragged clothes, not knowing where your next meal was going to come from. You would positively make that as a choice rather than going to the workhouse. So it's the other side of that that I'm going to talk to um, a, a little uh, now. Now, the East, as, as I was saying, London expanded enormously, particularly the East End. Uh, and of course, the East End of London has had wave after wave of immigrants. We all know of Huguenot immigrants. We tend not to talk about them as being immigrants, but this drift of population from East Anglia uh, and, and elsewhere into London, they were migrants, whether you want to put the letters IM in front of them or not. They were people who'd been displaced from somewhere else and sought refuge, sought employment, sought life in East London. It couldn't cope. 18, and it wasn't just in London, but other large cities. The central government's response to this, somewhat belatedly, 1834, they established something called the Poor Law Amendment Act, which some of you may remember from your day's history there. I'm not going to go into detail, but essentially, it established an early form of local government that said these people who were called local guardians could tax the local population based on property value. So in the East End, you know, where most people didn't have property, they weren't taxed. But the local guardians instituted a tax from which they built workhouses into which they put people who were living on the streets or couldn't cope. One of the things about the 1834 Act was it established the principle that it called less eligibility. In other words, they were saying, we don't want to make these workhouses so nice that people are just going to come in and live in them. We want to make life so difficult in them that people would only go there in absolute desperation. Conditions there would be less eligible than they would find outside. Well, if you're living outside without a roof on your head and you don't know where the next meal is going to come from, how do you make life for those people more miserable? Well, they did. They managed it. They put people, they separated. Families would go in, destitute. They were separated by sex, and their children were taken away from the, the parents. They would rarely meet. They were put in dreadful, uh, degrading uniforms. They were giving back-breaking work, smashing up stones, picking oakum, doing all sorts of dreadful stuff, given appalling food, next to no medical facilities and so on. Which is why I'm saying that life in those workhouses was so bad that people chose to live in the conditions in that picture rather than to go in to the workhouses. Some of these workhouses grew so large, and the Whitechapel one was a good example, that they decided that they would separate the children in the workhouse from the parents. And the theory was the parents were idle, they were feckless, ne'er-do-wells, and if the children were with them in the workhouse in Whitechapel, they would put, carry on those traditions with their children. So the idea was get the kids away, put them somewhere else, toughen them up, so that we'll turn them into proper people who themselves don't become the next generation of workhouse dwellers, residents, inmates. And so Whitechapel was one of the leading boards of guardians, one of the leading poor law to do this. And it decided to purchase some land in the country, Forest Gate, seven miles away, to purchase some land in the country, in Forest Gate, and built this institution. It was built for 900 children, and very soon the Whitechapel Guardians realised they could make some serious money by subcontracting it effectively, and they sold places off to other boards of guardians. So Whitechapel ran this place, and then for a while Hackney and Poplar, who were, had their own boards, sent their own children there. After a while, the three of them combined, and they called it the Forest Gate District School. So it was in the district of Forest Gate, but all the children that were there 
for almost all of its existence from the mid-1850s to the early years of the 20th century were from the East End. Whitechapel built the place and Whitechapel was there at the end. Other people came in and out at different times. So this is a significant part of the lives of a very large number, the late 19th century uh, Whitechapel children. Now, although they called it a school, it wasn't. It was a, it was a, it was a children's workhouse. So they attempted to apply the same conditions there as their parents were experiencing in the workhouse, but to allegedly give them a better example so that they could leave and not be corrupted by indolence and, uh, and so on. So, but the conditions were dreadful. Uh, this is a photograph taken by Henrietta Barnett, and I'll talk about her a little in a little while. These were the girls in the workhouse. The children would go there. They, there was no um, voluntarism about it. The children were taken away from their parents in the workhouse and sent there. They went there at the age of two. They were separated. Uh, there were three groups of children, the under sevens who were in the nursery, and then the boys and the girls who were over seven, they were put into separate buildings. Siblings would not be in touch with each other. They weren't allowed contact with each other. So, so this, you know, this is a, 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 a photo taken in the 1890s. They had their head shaved on uh, admission, and which was probably good for on public health grounds to stop lice and God knows what else. They were put into these dreadful uniforms, um, parental visits were limited to two hours every three months. Um, and unsurprisingly, there was a huge demand. Parents clamoured to go there. And the response on a number of occasions wasn't to say, well, perhaps we ought to do it more often. It's, we can't cope with this demand. We'll stop them coming altogether. The food was uh, barely adequate and often uh, outdated. It was, and, and, and you know, there, were, there were regular bouts of food poisoning. These were the girls. These were the boys. Again, a photo taken by Henrietta Barnett. The first time I saw that photo, I didn't see it in a context. I didn't. I, I just saw the photo, and my immediate response was, "This is a picture from Belson." Uh, yeah, this was uh, 130 years ago in an institution 10 miles away from this building, and these were the boys. So, in addition to they, the, the institution was run by ex-soldiers. Uh, women didn't have a look in, and the idea was a good bit of military discipline is what they need. We'll toughen them up. We'll make them, you know, fit for society. There was lots of brutality and physical violence. I've been through the, there's, there's huge, huge numbers of uh, records in the archives, in London Metropolitan Archives, the um, English National Archives in, in Kew, and bits and pieces in Tower Hamlet's uh, library. Uh, it was called a school. The average class size was uh, in the region of 90. Uh, the teachers were not trained. They were often just, you know, people who were prepared to go and work there. Uh, so it was a it was a child minding rather than a child educating institution. Absolutely everything in the institution was done in silence. So when they got up in the morning, a bell was rung in silence. They went to wash themselves, to dress. Bell was rung in silence. They went there, well, to prayers. Bell was rung in silence. They went to eat. Bell was rung in silence. They went to school and so on throughout the day. It was called. It was occasionally, often called, an industrial school, um, because the view was: we'll give these kids a job, a career, so that will stop them being on the streets. But the, it wasn't a career. It wasn't a job. It was. They were all given skivvying jobs to keep the institution running so they didn't have to pay staff to do so. So huge numbers of girls 
would be in on their hands and knees all day long scrubbing the floors. They'd be working in the la in, in, in the laundry. The boys would be working in the what were very extensive uh, gardens at the back, preparing the food, uh, the, the fresh food that was consumed there. The, the boys, the, the only real industrial training was, was a bit of tailoring was done, so the a, a tailoring and cobbling. So the boys made shoes and uh, clothes for the other kids in the school. So it was repetitive, it was dull, it wasn't training, they were just being used in order to get this stuff done as cheaply as possible. And just to give you an indication, I mean, the average age of children in this institution was 10. I mean, how on earth could you be described that as an appropriate age to give anything approximating to industrial training? So they went in from the age of two, their parents see them three or four times a year if they were lucky. They would leave at the age of 14 or 15, kicked out onto the streets to go and fend for themselves. Some of them drifted into the adult workhouse and you can only speculate on their fate. Of, you know, these kids had been locked up in this institution. They weren't allowed out, which I'll talk about in a minute. They, far from training them to be fit for society, it was as if they'd been locked up in a prison for 10 years. They came out not knowing anything of the outside world. Naivety, goodness knows what else. And you know, they were just set on the streets at the age of 14 to look after themselves. Well, you know, the amount of economic, sexual, physical abuse is just, you know, doesn't bear thinking about. There was one bright spark for this institution. Um, in, uh, as part, I, I won't go into the details of it, but um, it was, it, it got funding and set up a training vessel for sailors in, in Grace, in Essex. And this became an incredibly successful operation. The first ship that the, the Goliath burnt down, it was replaced by a ship called the, the Exmouth. And the guy who ran it was uh, an ex-Navy uh, guy called uh, William Sutherland Boucher. And he had a quite startling success rate in churning out good sailors. It was run by the same organisation that ran this dreadful school. Now, today, we'd think, if this is really good bit of the organisation, there's a really bad bit, what can the bad bit learn from the good bit? None of that. The, the ship was left to get on with its own, and this dreadful behaviour uh, continued in, in Forest Gate. Now, there were two... The entire uh, establishment in Forest Gate, Whitehall's kids, uh, Whitechapel's kids, was run by men, the ex-army ex men at the top, all the way down, until the 1870s when two quite remarkable women came and had an incredible impact on the organisation. The first was the woman on the left, uh, uh, Jane Senior. She was Britain's first ever female civil servant. And it, it was in the... Um, what today we, we call the Department of Education. Um, it, it, it was then the, uh, the, the Poor Law Department. And she was um, asked to look at schools such as the one in Whitechapel, and she produced this report saying this was just dreadful. Uh, she wrote it, she was asked to write it from a girl's perspective, which for the time is quite an advanced thing to ask someone to do, and she was saying, look, if you're sending girls here with the view, you know, these, these are the mothers of the next generation. If they're completely cut off from society, if they're completely cut off from love and nurture and care and understanding in the society they're developed, if they're never allowed out of the building, what sort of mothers are you going to be producing for the next generation? She put this in to the, uh, the apartment and she was, oh, this was sentimental nonsense. These kids needed knocking into shape. That'll, that'll keep them on the, the straight and narrow. Unfortunately, Jane Senior you know, suffered quite a serious illness and, and uh, left the civil service after a relatively short time. Enter the second 
a significant person. And I'd, I'd, li I'd just like to talk a little, uh, for, for a few minutes about her, because she is one of Whitechapel's most significant uh, historic figures. And that's Henrietta Barnett. She was brought up from a very well-heeled society of liberal reformers living in, in Surrey, uh, the, the Rowland uh, family. In her early 20s, she met a similarly well-heeled young man, Samuel Barnett, who was a young Church of England vicar who had a very, very nice parish in West London. They married in 1873, but they both had a social reforming zeal. And, you know, you could put this down to their Christianity or, or whatever. But they, they, they went to the, the Bishop of London. You know, they could have a very nice life in West London, well-heeled congregation, doing nice things and so on. But they went to the Bishop of, of London and said, we want to work where we can make a difference. He couldn't believe his ears, um, and he posted them to St. Jude's Parish in Whitechapel, and I'll say a word about that in a minute, which he described as the worst parish in my di diocese inhabited largely by criminals. He sent them there in 1873. The parish hadn't had a vicar for three years because nobody would touch it. So the, 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 the church itself is was on Commercial Street between what is now Toynbee Hall and, and the end of Commercial Street. It, it's, it's now actually the base, that the, the, its footprint is now Cannon Bar the, uh, Cannon Barnet Primary School. Whitechapel was a no-go area for nice people. Slums, poverty, and of course, a, a, a lot of you will know, and this was a little earlier than the, the, the Ripper murders, but I'm sure you'll have read and heard much about social conditions in the area. Nice people did not want to go there. But the Barnets did, and they set on a, 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 an enormous campaign of social reform, you know, among other things. And these aren't the most significant at the time, but they, you know, they established the Toynbee, Toynbee Hall. They established the Whitechapel Art Gallery, both of which amazingly successful institutions. They did a great deal of um, um, slum clearance and built what, for the time, were new, new model dwellings, which they rented out at reasonable rents to people. Samuel, his, one of his first acts in getting into Whitechapel was to become a guardian, one of the people looking after the, the workhouse. And he soon spotted a need for Henrietta to get in there. Now, most of what the Barnets have done in Whitechapel is put down to Samuel. I would argue that Henrietta was as significant, if not more significant, as uh, a reforming character. Being slightly cynical, I would say she did herself no favours in this, in that she wrote a two-volume biography of Samuel, saying what an incredibly wonderful man he was. She didn't finish her own biography, her own autobiography, and it still exists in note form only in the London Metropolitan Archives. So, you know, she did a great deal to enhance his reputation and her legacy is in handwritten scribbled notes stuffed in a dusty old box in the archives. Anyway, he spotted an opportunity for Henrietta. He, he became a guardian himself so he could try to alleviate some of these dreadful conditions in the workhouse and make things better for the, uh, for the inhabitants. And he saw this school and said, look, I need to building on the work of Jane Senior, I need to get Henrietta into this school and pick up on Jane Senior's ideas. So you know, the Barnets were extremely well socially connected, as I'll talk about in a minute. Samuel was able to uh, get Henrietta to become only the second uh, workhouse guardian in the country. At the time, it was almost impossible because there were 
property uh, requirements, property ownership requirements in order to become a guardian. Most women didn't fall into that category. So he, he was able to persuade the local government board to uh, make her a guardian, an ex officio guardian. Having got her in there, he was then able to persuade the local government board and the Whitechapel guardians to make her a governor of that school that we've been talking about. She became the first female workhouse school governor in the country. And she was there for over 20 years. Now, she trotted it off. She went along to her first uh, governor's meeting and was appalled. It took place in the school, surrounded by these kids living in dire conditions. The, uh, the afternoon started off by a seven-course meal for the, the governor's uh, half of whom were half tipsy and not in a fit state to make any decisions about anything thereafter. And she found her time sitting on the board of governors to be immensely frustrated because she was endlessly patronised. This, oh, don't you worry about your, you don't understand, you don't you worry your pretty little head about this, dear. We'll knock some sense into these kids. She wouldn't be put off. So she went round the back and did it through the, uh, the back route. She used to visit the school regularly and incrementally make changes by her presence in the school. One of the things, in, in, in the scrappy notes that she has in the, in the archives, she said one of the things that she was proudest of, and this just shows you how awful it is, was to persuade the mate call girls by their names rather than by the numbers they had sewn on the back of their shirts, you know. So there was just, you know, part of just trying to humanise this place. She introduced, you know, she got them to, to do outside trips. I don't know how well any of you know the area, but that school is half a mile away from Wanstead Flats, which is a glorious place, a glorious open space. The kids weren't allowed out. Weren't allowed out for over the first 20 years of the institution's existence. So she would organise parties on a Sunday afternoon, get some of her mates to come over, and just take to run around on the flats. She introduced for the first time a library, again, calling on her some of her more affluent middle class friends to contribute books, brought in toys brought in paintings to hang on the walls instead of just drab walls, just trying to humanise, to bring a bit of culture, to bring a bit of dignity to their lives. She the, the girls allegedly were being trained to be domestic servants. They spent their entire time scrubbing the floors. They weren't allowed to talk to each other. The Barnets were well off. She and Samuel had a, a very significant property that they'd been left in Hampstead. So she took 12 girls at a time and took them to Hampstead and under the supervision of her housekeeper in Hampstead, they were given training in a range of skills that they were likely to require in the one job that they were likely to get, i.e. as a domestic servant. So instead of spending eight hours a day scrubbing the floor, they did a bit of cooking, a bit of washing, a bit of shopping, a bit of housework, etc., etc. So having spent six months at a time at her place, they actually came out with industrial skills, so they could actually get a job when they left. She introduced for the first time an aftercare service for girls leaving institutions like this school. And as I said earlier on, boys and girls were thrown out at the age of 14 or 15 and left to their own devices. Many of the girls were picked up and, you know, and, and turned into or given positions as domestic servants. And they were just then floated away and nobody knew what on earth happened to them. Whether they were well treated, badly treated, abused, financially abused, beaten, sexually abused, who knows? So Henrietta set up this organisation called the Metropolitan Association for the Befriending of Young Servants, where again she got some of her mates and you know, once a year, every child, every girl, it was for girls initially, every girl who left was visited once a year in their place of employment to make sure everything was okay. And if they weren't, they were hiked out and found somewhere else. Or they would try to settle any differences that either the, the, the house they were living in or... or um, and, you know, they're young girls, they're 14, they're 15. Uh, you know, tried to sort out any problems they may have had. 
she also uh, introduced the notion of so not only shock horror taking kids out onto one sick flat she introduced the notion of um, sending them on camping holidays in Essex now all of these things cost money but as I've said before the Barnets were incredibly well connected so in order to pay for the holidays, she set up a, a charity called the Children's Country Holiday Fund, and she was able to get, this is how well connected she was, she was able to get one of Queen Victoria's daughters to become its patron. They raised money and were able to take the kids on holiday. As far as the books and stuff in the libraries were concerned, she, again, she was able to use her mates to, to make donations. As far as the, the Metropolitan Association for the Befriending of Young Servants was concerned, again, it was her middle-class friends that she got round to act almost as mentors or supervisors or carers of these young girls who were in other people's homes. So she did a huge amount behind the scenes against the wishes of the other than her all-male governors and all-male management to try to make life a bit better. But she knew at the bottom of it, this was just tinkering around the system. Basically, the culture was wrong. The culture that said these kids need to be beaten into shape is the thing that needed to be changed. And no matter what she did, she couldn't change that. Until two quite remarkable events happened within three years of each other. On New Year's Eve, 1890, a fire broke out in the school. And this, these uh, drawings are from the London Illustrated News. Uh, 26 boys were killed. They were, they were suffocated in the fire. And there was an inquest that was inconclusive and said, oh, it was a terrible shame. I mean, what had happened was, the, the, the boys were in a dormitory and a fire had broken out in, in a room underneath. The inquest verdict was inconclusive, so a terrible, terrible shame. Barnett did a great deal of work on this and discovered that, of course, the reason the 26 died was that their uh, dormitory had been locked. And their dormitory had been locked because it was New Year's Eve. All the dormitories had been locked, so the, pub, so the staff went down the pub. None of this came out of the inquest, and she was horrified. Three years later, there was a huge scandal, a food poisoning scandal, and basically the managers, that the superintendent and his colleagues, were substituting rotten food for good food. So the butcher was coming in providing meat for stews or whatever, and he was putting in... And, and there were witnesses to say that they could see maggots running all over the food and so on. It wasn't the first food poisoning incident, and many had, had similar causes. But it, because this incident happened just so soon after the fire, which had got national attention, this got national attention as well. Again, it was an inconclusive verdict. But by now, people were saying, well, just hold on a minute. You know, we've locked these people away, and in the words at the time of my book, they were out of sight and out of mind. Nobody gave them a second look. But suddenly, people said, well, we don't want our kids being brought up like this. Uh, these photos uh, are, are of uh, an, uh, an obelisk and its base that still exists in West Ham Cemetery, which is next door to where the uh, where the fire took place. Uh, and it, they're, they're still there. The, 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 the names of the boys aren't there anymore, unfortunately, but the obelisk is still there. And uh, a number of people every year on New Year's Day go and lay flowers there. The, the two events, the fire and the food poisoning, had convinced Barnet that tinkering around holidays, books, day trips, whatever, weren't going to change what was basically wrong with the school. Back to her incredibly well-connected position. It just so happened that her brother-in-law was a man called Abraham Hart, her brother-in-law was a man called Abraham Hart, and it just so happened that he was editor of the British Medical Journal. 
he persuaded him to run a campaign in the BMJ that lasted two years, every couple of months, focusing on ill health issues in and around this and other similar schools. Now, okay, nobody, I assume nobody in this room reads the British Medical Journal and so on. It's not at the top of any, anybody's reading list. But the regular dripping of this began to have an impact with policymakers in Whitehall. Um, and people were beginning to say, well, perhaps these places aren't that great after all. She coincided this with pulling out another one of her great connections. There was a Liberal MP called Anthony Mandela, who had been, had been a minister, that's very successful uh, minister of education, and had to resign because of a scandal. Now, I will make no comment on this, other than to say the scandal that he had to resign on was that a company that he had set up and had left, had sold, five years before he came, became Minister of Education, went bankrupt. Five years after he'd had anything at all to do with it, this was deemed to be a scandal on his part, and he was required to step down as the Minister of Education. I make no comment on parallels with today. But, so, but he was still in Parliament, and was an active social reforming liberal educationalist. So Henrietta Barnett persuaded him to set up a parliamentary committee to investigate these, which by now were being collectively called barrack schools because the conditions in them reflected those in army barracks. And he produced this report, which was completely damning, picked up on some of the stuff that uh, Jane Senior had said 20 years previously. Uh, Barnett herself sat on the committee. They got evidence all over the place. And he'd said, these schools have got to end. So this was a Liberal setting up a parliamentary committee and the Conservative equivalent of education minister turned around and said, yeah, we'll have to get rid of them. They're no good. This was 1896. So she had spent 20 years trying to reform them and come to the conclusion they needed to be abolished and was there to effectively see the government say that they would go. Now, in 1896, her period of office as a governor came to an end. So she walked out, she left, and in the back door came these two quite remarkable other local people who picked up her baton and carried on with it. They were two of the first working-class guardians, poor law guardians in the country, because recently the conditions for being appointed had been made easier, and so it was easier for working-class people to, uh, to become a guardian. They both uh, eventually became Labour MPs. They both became guardians in Poplar, uh, which was another one of the poor law authorities running this school. On the, on the left, the bearded one is a guy called Will Crooks, perhaps the lesser known of the two. He himself had been a workhouse boy, um, and in his um, biography he says that the day he set foot in that workhouse school as a seven-year-old was forever printed on his mind, and his main driver throughout life was to see the ending of those schools. Uh, he became... Uh, he, so he became a, a guardian in Poplar. He became a Poplar councillor. In 1911, he became um, MP for, for Woolwich. Um, uh, but for a while, 1896 to just over 1900, he became a governor of the school. Uh, Poplar Guardian, governor of the school. And the other local figure, who is perhaps better known to most of you, is George Lansbury. He moved to London as a Liberal, um, worked for the Liberals uh, as a, an election agent, met a local woman who happened to be relatively well off. Her dad ran a... Um, 
a timber yard. They went to Australia, came back, it didn't work out, they came back. His politics transferred, were transformed, he became a socialist, he got onto the popular guardians and with crooks was the driving force to get rid of these, this wretched school. His onward history, he was a, became a, um, a councillor in Poplar, became the mayor of Poplar. Some of you may know about the Poplar Revolt of the 1920s where Poplar uh, councillors refused to set a rate uh, and, effect, and, and uh, 22 of them were sent to Brixham Prison. So council meetings were held in the prison. He then, he was a local MP and eventually in 1935, after the collapse of the Ramsey MacDonald government, he became leader of the Labour Party in, in Parliament for a short period. Anyway, these, these two were working class guardians who had picked up Henrietta Barnett's mantle and decided that this wretched place needed to go. To cut a very long story short, Forest Gate was now booming as a, a potential commuter suburb. They sold the school and the, the lands off the school to, to a considerable sum of money. Um, and with that, the, the Poplar went one way and Whitechapel went the other. Just very briefly on Poplar, Crooks and... Um, uh, Lansbury said, right, enough of these huge institutions, enough of these barrack-like places. What we're going to do is put our children in proper homes to live in proper uh, houses with proper with adults to mix around with children in the locality. And they built something quite, which became quite well known called the Hutton Poplars in Brentwood. And it set the standard for 20th century children's homes. It got a royal seal of approval with a royal visit in the late, uh, in the 18, uh, sorry, 1918, I think. And so this institution, which had been by some distance the worst in the country, people like Barnett, Crooks and Lansbury had been able to transform the conditions, close the school down, and in, uh, for popular uh, kids, they went there. Uh, as to the buildings themselves, they're still there for a while. It became a maternity hospital, and there is the staff in the 1950s, all looking very prim. Um, it, as I said earlier on, it closed in 1986 when New General Hospital was, was built. Um, but in the grounds, the, 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 the buildings are still there. In the grounds, there are um, statues or, or, or uh, commemorations of its role. Firstly, the, on the left, the fire, and secondly, a maternity nurse. Um, the building exists and it looks very nice. It's still um, owned by the NHS. It's run by a housing association is used as a, as a nursing home, but the inside of it, the, 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 it's been a really pretty awful uh, reefer, but it, it does look very nice from the outside. So that's the, the popular thing. You are Whitechapel. What happened to the Whitechapel children when the school closed? Well, using the money they got from the sale of the building, they built what they called scattered homes in Grays, in, in Essex, very close to where these training ships were. So what they were saying was, let's not put 900 kids in an institution, lock them up and keep them away from anywhere else. Let's not even do what the people in Poplar did and buy a nice row of houses and put them in there, because they're still going to be, oh, that's the poor people's road. Let's build and they built, built pairs of semi-detached houses scattered all over the place and put 10 kids in each of the houses and put a pair of not army majors, house parents, and the leading person was the mother. The house mother was the superintendent who ran it, and the husband, had to be a husband, he did a bit of the skibbing but did some industrial training. So when they were appointed, they would look for the husband who had existing skills from some job prior to going there. And so 
these conditions were light years away from what Whitechapel's children had experienced for 50 years in Forest Gate. Other children, uh, Whitechapel did a great deal to, to uh, encourage the fostering of, of other children in, in families elsewhere. In other words, bring them up in a family environment rather than an institution. And just to show the difference, in Forest Gate, it was one vast institution in these scattered homes small units with an average of only 10 each. Forest Gate, they were divided by sex and age. In the scattered homes, there were mixed age and mixed gendered houses. Forest Gate, run by ex-army people. For scattered homes, couples with a wife in charge. Forest Gate, humiliating uniforms. Scattered homes, no uniforms. The kids were supposed to blend in with the other kids in the local community. So Forest Gate, minimal social contact with the outside world, scattered homes in greys. You're part of the community. Forest Gate, boarding school with up to 70 kids in a class, scattered homes, went to local schools with local children. Forest Gate, unsatisfactory industrial training. Scattered homes, no industrial training because seen as stigmatising, but the male in the household assisted in developing the, the, the boys. Forest Gate, minimal recreation, the male's job in the scattered homes to include responsibility. Forest Gate, almost impossible to get parental visits. Scattered homes, regular parental visits, although cost of transport was an issue. And all these huge, huge improvements, and they were cheaper to run in this more humane way. Two years after this new form of establishment had been built by Whitechapel, there was a, a government report that said that Whitechapel's guardians were keenly alive to their responsibilities for making careful provision for the children under their charge. It's only 10 years ago, children under their charge were being suffocated and poisoned. Enormous, enormous progress. Other changes, well, uh, they, Whitechapel built um, what they called a, a, a receiving home in Mile End, where parents who went into, don't forget the workhouses effectively continued until 1948. Whitechapel built what they called a receiving home in, in Mile End. So as soon as parents went into um, the Whitechapel Workhouse. Their children would go to this kind of halfway house in Mile End to prepare them to go out to graze. In 1925, Whitechapel's poor law authority was taken over by Stepneys. Not really sure why. Stepney had something called a Stifford Homes, which is a, a much larger 200-child you know, orphanage. And this was put in charge of these... Uh, uh, shelter, these scattered homes didn't really work out. In 1930, all of this stuff was taken over by the London County Council. In the 1950s, it was taken over by Essex County Council. Now, all, and all of the scattered homes, they were so ordinary, they were designed to look like everybody else's homes. None of them exist anymore. They're either individual people's homes that have been flattened or taken over. Unlike these massive institutions, and wherever you go in the country, old workhouses still exist. They're now very bijou apartments in most, in most places. But it was a sign of how ordinary these scattered homes were, is that they didn't survive. So unfortunately, I can't uh, offer you a, a photo of them. And that is pretty much it from me. Thank you very much for listening. First of all, thanks again for a terrific talk. Really, really interesting. Something which is close. So we're just going to throw throw the questions from the floor now. So if you have a question, just put your hand up. I'll I'll come to you and um, we'll try and answer them. Great talk, first of all. Thank you very much. My question really is about um, Henrietta Barnett, and she was part of a group that was led by Octavia Hill. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they believed in 
the kids didn't, or the people that accepting charity didn't have to show gratitude, and it took them a long time. Do you know about that? I don't. No, I don't, not a great deal. But Xavier Hill. So can, I mean, can you hear enormous amounts? And, and I mean, interestingly, I mean, a lot of her housing um, things were stuff that the Barnets picked up on as well, and that they would establish these new model dwellings, but. They would determine, there were very strict laws, you know, rules, you know, you had to be in employment, you had to pay your rent regularly, inspectors would come round and, and make sure the place was clean. And, you know, if you didn't adhere to what they saw as being the norms of good society, you'd be evicted. Very clear, very principled, but very generous. And there was that whole cluster of women. There was her, there was um, Henrietta Barnett, there was Jane Senior. I know little about their activity together, but I know they kind of bounced off each other in many ways. And at the time, you know, three very significant female uh, social reformers in the 1870s, 1880s was was of significance in this country at the time. You know, women didn't have the vote. They were 50 years away from getting the vote, weren't they? Okay, great. Um, are there any other questions? Yeah, great. A quick question about whether the, the adult workhouses in Whitechapel, whether the children, the relationship with the school, were the children uh, taken from there? Or what was the system of getting children from Whitechapel into the school? Well, if the parents turned up in the Whitechapel workhouse, which was... Uh, in what is now Valence Road. The children would just simply have been taken away from them and sent to Forest Gate. There was no permission store or anything. When they went to Forest Gate, they had a what was called a receiving or a reception ward where they'd be kept for two or three weeks to make sure they were not bringing in disease with them, almost as a sort of quarantine thing. And then just shoved into the appropriate gender or age group dormitories and that was it the, and as I said the, the parents were only permitted entry two hours one Sunday afternoon every three months until the 1890s and it became monthly or fortnightly or something so you know, the, and, and you know, Forest Gate wasn't particularly easy to get to from the Whitechapel workhouse, you know, bearing in mind the, the, the people in the workhouse had no money anyway. They'd often have to walk, you know, which, you know, you know by our standards today, that would be a hefty old walk. Well, I mean, I suppose it's a, you could do it in an hour, hour and a half, but, you know, they'd end up having to do that. So, the, you know, for, it was almost a deliberate attempt to break up families to, to ensure that the children didn't receive too much um, attention from their parents in case, in case their evil and indolent ways transferred over. So, yeah, it, it, it's set out to break up families, really, I think. Okay, I'm just going to ask, is there any questions from anybody on Zoom? Yes, Sue, go ahead. Hi, uh, John, thank you very much. That was an excellent... enjoyed it enormously. And in fact, I've just been onto my iPad and ordered your book. It's coming on. Oh, Tuesday. thank you very much. Thanks, thanks very much. Thank you very much for that. Um, I, I, I live in Norfolk and not far down the road, and Trevor will probably know about this place, just down the road to, to where I live, is a place called uh, Gresson Hall Museum. Uh, it, it was a workhouse, and now uh, it, is, it is a workhouse museum. And actually, there was a workhouse, except they called it a house of industry. Um, at, in that very building uh, where the museum currently is from 1877 and it functioned like a workhouse uh, but when the poor law came along in 1834 which actually prescribed you know the day-to-day -day life of people in a workhouse right down to how much uh, they could eat and what food they had and uh, and so on in fact the conditions deteriorated in Gresson Hall um, after the uh, 1834 Act. Uh, but if you are ever in that part of the country, I really would recommend... We go to Norfolk quite often, uh, to North Norfolk, in the Hunt Stanton area. So where, where, where's Bretton Hall? 
Sorry. He's saying that um, he's saying that um, he's um, he's regularly goes to Norfolk. He's aware of the hilarity. Oh, excellent, excellent. Oh well, Faithland right. Faithland's very close to Hunstand. Yeah. Have, have a look the next uh, time we're Hall. Okay, thanks. Thanks for that. Thanks, Sue. Thanks. Okay. Um, there is actually a question um, from Renata. Um, it's just, is there a difference between courthouse and workhouse? It's just, they're the same. I mean, in, in, in popular, it, it would be called the poorhouse in popular parlance. My, my, my family background is in, in Scotland, and, uh, and uh, it was always referred to as the Poosers. So, and, 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 and I'm sure in different places it, it, it had uh, okay. uh, less flattering titles as well, really. <laughs> Steve, thank you. Um, it was uh, a, a, a great presentation. I was born in 1947 in, in the East, um, in Bethel Green, and I was, I grew up in Bethel Green, and I worked in, during my um, professional time in either the East End or the Central London. I, in, in, during the 70s, I, I was with a company, and he said, oh, we've just bought a house, a, a building across the street, that was a ragged school. I was wondering what is the difference between a ragged school and a worker? Yeah, well, the, 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 the ragged school movement, um, they, I mean, they are very, very different. The ragged, ragged school movement was probably most associated with um, the Earl of Shaftesbury um, and, um, and uh, Dr. Bernardo. There, there, there is still in Tower Hamlets a ragged uh, school museum, which is very good. Um, it's not, I mean, it's not huge, but there are, there are a couple of classrooms in there. There are a number of exhibits, and they are very, very welcoming of um, uh, school parties to go and you know have a look at uh, Victorian uh, childhood and, child and, and and school activity. As far as Bernardo was concerned. Um, he'd, uh, he, 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 he was a doctor uh, who trained at the London Hospital, had intended to become a missionary um, and go to China. When he was um, at the London Hospital, he was so appalled at the poverty in the East End that he um, decided to stay put and, and, and try to tend the needs of local people rather than going abroad and uh, he set up um, a ragged school uh, and it, it, it was a day school so it, it wasn't initially a border place um, and he would pick up kids from the street feed them and try and teach as he progressed he, he, um, he I can't remember the name of the, the woman he married but he, 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 he married a woman uh, who had some substance, and as a wedding gift, they were given a large house in Parkinside, which they turned into the um, the basis of what was the, the, became the Bernardo's village. So he 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 started off really just just um, as a day school for poor kids, taking them off the street and feeding right. them. And then when he had a bit of money behind him, he set up the um, the, the the villages and the Bernardo's homes that we've. Um, We've all come to know. Um, mm. he, he he wasn't unique in that. There was something called a ragged school movement, which uh, was most associated with Shaftesbury, uh, and and there were clusters of them in different parts of the country. I, I I don't know a great deal about them, but they were separate from uh, poor law institutions. In fact, sure. Um, Bernardo was so separate from the poor law institution, interestingly, well, it interests me, <laughs> um, mo most uh, of the poor law areas in London had their own workhouses or children's workhouses. Stepney, at, when uh, Bernardo uh, was around, uh, uh, did not, but they sent their kids to, um, to his places in Barkingside and paid him. So he was effectively uh, an early... Um, um, I, I don't know out, outsourcing of, of, of workhouse children, but the conditions there were were much uh, much better than they were in in, in in the place in Forest Gate at the same time. 
I don't know if you've been to the village, it's still there. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. it, is, it is a village, uh, unlike yeah. this kind of barrack-like place in Forest Gate. Yeah, there are a number, the down, a number of downsides of the, the uh, Bernardo's yeah. operation, including sending um, uh, kids against their they or their parents' wishes to Australia and, and Canada. Um, it, it, his motto was uh, that he's going to have an ever-open door for any needy child. Well, if you have a, an ever-open front door, you need an ever-open back door, really. And one mm. of the ways in which he dealt with that was to um, send huge numbers of children to um, you know what was then part of the empire. I think um, uh, yeah, yeah, there are a lot of uh, a lot of regrets about that now. But I think at the time the, 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 it was just seen as being fairly progressive and a better way of treating kids than uh, banging them up in a in, in a workhouse. Well, I, I can only tell you that the um, the church on the Barkingside village is. Is one of the coldest places you have ever been in. Oh right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I, I've been there in you know in, in, on one or two occasions, and you freeze in in August. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But thank you, thank you for whatever you've done today. Okay, it's great. Thanks. I'm just about to order your book. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you very much. That's great. Thank you. Oh. Okay, well, thanks very much, everybody. Thank you very much, John. Don't forget, if you want to find more of John's readings, E7 now and then. Thanks very much, John. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, indeed. I appreciate it very much. Been a delight. Absolute delight. And that was John Walker, the author of Out of Sight, Out of Mind, at the August 2022 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. I'd like to thank Mr. Walker, Steve Ratty, Tony Power, and the entire committee of the Whitechapel Society for making the release of this talk possible. If you'd like more information about the Whitechapel Society, like becoming a member, a list of upcoming guest speakers, purchase books, or subscribe to the Whitechapel Society Journal, visit their website at whitechapelsociety.com. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org with nearly 300 episodes of roundtable discussions, author interviews, conference talks, and book reviews all about the Whitechapel murders and Victorian London crime and history. I'd like to thank you all for listening and see you next time.